Good morning. My name is Dustin. I'm on staff here at South Point. I want to thank you for joining us. And if it's your first time or if I've never had a chance to meet you, I just encourage you, come and say hi to me after service. I'd love to have an opportunity to meet you. I promise you that I am way more awkward than you are. And I would just, we always say here at South Point that we believe that our church would be better if you were a part of it, and we truly mean that. So I'd love an opportunity to meet you this morning after service. I'm going to start off this morning uh, by reading a passage out of Psalm, and uh, I'm going to read this once on my own, and then I'm going to invite you to read it once with me. It says this, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. I invite you to read it with me now. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Keep these words in the back of your mind and in your heart this morning as we pick up where we left off last week as we are in week two of this upside down series in which we are looking at the most famous sermon ever preached by Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, if you were with us, we read through the Beatitudes and we talked about the ways in which Jesus shows up for those who are desperate and he, the way he rearranges their outlook on life and the way he then uses them to inflict the peace and hope of his kingdom on the world around them. And this next portion of the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to study this morning is going to build on that last part of the Beatitudes. It's going to build on that idea that Jesus' followers will be used by God to inflict the beauty and power and truth of his kingdom on the world around us. And so this morning, we're still going to be in Matthew chapter 5, and we will be picking up in verse 13 as Jesus builds on the Beatitudes. And this is what he says. He says, you, talking to his followers, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This morning we're going to be talking about salt and light. Salt and light. Jesus, in this part of the sermon on the mount, actually begins to give an identity to his followers. I think we live in a world where people are starved for identity. They, they need an identity. They need an image for themselves. And in this passage, Jesus begins to give an identity to his followers. Now, I think a lot of us really revel in and love the parts of Scripture that say our identity is a child of God. I think we love that. We cling to that. We continue to come back to that as we should because it is the single most important piece of your identity as a Jesus follower. But that's not all that we are. You see, we're not simply benefactors to what Jesus accomplished on the cross, but we are also messengers to this magnificent and miraculous thing that Jesus did on the cross that day so long ago and then three days later when he walked out of that tomb. We're messengers, and so, yes, if you've given your life to Jesus, celebrate and go crazy and be undignified and wild about the fact that you get to be a child of God because of the sacrifice of Jesus. But don't forget that that's not where your identity stops. God is not done with you yet. 
Jesus makes two colossal claims in this passage that we as believers cannot overlook and we cannot ignore it. Jesus says that his followers are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. This not only suggests that there's more to our lives than simply being saved by grace, but it actually commands that being saved by grace should infiltrate every corner of our lives and how we live and interact with the world. This is Jesus clearly defining how his followers are supposed to participate in the world around them because we all participate, right? You're alive. You participate. You can hate the world as much as you want, but you do participate. Even those who run away and live in isolation, that's a form of participating. Everyone participates in one way or another, but in this passage, Jesus is outlining that those who belong to his kingdom will, will participate in the world differently than those around him, that we will be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Let me ask you something. With which of your five senses do you most commonly experience salt? Taste, right? Taste. And with which of your five senses do you most commonly experience light? Sight, right? Taste, see. Taste, and see. Taste and see. Just for fun, will you read this passage with me one more time when it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see. Salt and light. Now, for clarity's sake, Psalm 34 was written around a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good, and then Jesus comes along and says, you, you are going to be the vessel by which the world tastes and sees that I am good. I think it's interesting that this phrase, taste and see, has basically become Christianese in a lot of ways. It's basically become this phrase that Christians say or they know of but don't really understand what it means. What do you mean taste and see? I, I've heard Christians quote this scripture. I grew up hearing Christians who had claimed to experience tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. It certainly finds its way into worship music. And I know it sounds beautiful and poetic and romantic, but what in the world does it actually mean to taste and see that the Lord is good? And I think about it this way. Have you ever been away from someone you love dearly? Have you ever been away from someone who you really Love, either for an extended period of time or even if it's just for a few days. You know, some people, because of work, can spend days, weeks, months, even years in some cases away from the people that they love. And, you know, you can call them on the phone and you can hear their voice, and that's great. And nowadays with technology, you can FaceTime them and see their face, and that's beautiful. But there's just something so different about being with them. Last summer, I joined our youth group for their trip to CIY in Tennessee. The trip was a week long, so a week long away from my family. And then at the end of the trip, the very end of the trip, I ended up getting a pretty bad case of COVID. And so I had to stay behind in Tennessee almost another week for safety and healing. And you know the whole COVID spiel by now. And it was rough, man. It was, it was rough. Being sick, being in pain, being by myself, stuck in a hotel room, missing my family, and, and I could call them and talk to them, right? I, I heard their voices, and we FaceTimed, and I could see 
their faces, but when I tell you that when I finally got back home to see them and smell them and just touch them and embrace them, that it's this emotional, powerful, just like, ah, I could eat you up, I love you so much. To physically experience someone who you love so deeply, be it your parents or your kids or your spouse or your friends, the embrace of someone that you love is so vastly different from anything else. And I think in Psalm 34, David is saying, experience God like that, and man, that's going to change the way you see everything. Experience God like that, and you won't need another blessing for the rest of your life. And then Jesus comes along a thousand years later and says, my followers, my followers are going to personally lead people to this kind of experience with me. This is heavy. Y'all, this is a big deal. This is unheard of. What kind of confidence must Jesus have to say that what he offers is so powerful, that what he offers is so powerful that people around you could be changed simply by witnessing it in your life? That's power. Salt and light. Practically, though, you know, I think in theory, illustratively, it sounds beautiful, but theoretically only goes so far. Practically, what does it mean for a Jesus follower to be salt and light? And I think this is where it gets really amazing. And honestly, I think sometimes it feels like God is just showing off how powerful and clever he is because the way he designs things is so intentional. And here's what makes it so cool, because Jesus says, his followers will be salt and light. But as we know, salt and light are already things that exist in nature. They have these inherent qualities in them. And the thing is, interestingly, but not coincidentally, because God is a master designer, we can actually look at the natural qualities of salt and light, and it can begin to paint a picture for us of how Jesus wants his followers to participate in the world. And so the natural qualities of salt and light, and first I want to look at salt. Because salt has three very distinct qualities that we as believers should also exhibit as we participate in the world. And the first is that salt is an antiseptic. Salt is an antiseptic. Before modern medicine and bubbly, bubbly hydrogen peroxide and antibiotics, especially within this society that Jesus is teaching in, they would frequently use salt to clean wounds and speed up the healing process. In some ways, we still do this today. If you've ever had a canker sore inside your mouth, maybe you swish salt water around to treat that. Or if you're like me and you just don't believe in dealing with canker sores, you'll just pack salt right onto that thing. And it burns, man. It hurts. But when I tell you, it draws out the infection and it heals the wound in just a couple minutes. Salt has antiseptic properties. In the same way, we as Jesus followers, are called to seek out the hurting and seek out the wounded, both physically and spiritually. You know, I know that each and every one of us in this room could name at least one person off the top of our head in your life who you know is hurting for one reason or another right now. For some of us, that person's actually you right now. And Jesus says his followers are meant to participate in this world by seeking out those who are hurting and seeking out those who are wounded and loving them and caring for them in a way that might lead them to the healing that God desires in their lives. And so for that person that you know is hurting, for that person that you know is wounded, are you functioning at all like an antiseptic 
in their life. Is that you? The next quality of salt is that it enhances flavor. You know this. Maybe you're the person who, before they even taste any of their food, they start breaking out the salt and pouring it all over their food. And for people who actually season their food like me, I'm like, wait, 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 try it first before you throw a bunch of salt all over it. But I understand that desire because we want our food to have flavor, right? And the amazing thing about salt is that salt doesn't add flavor the way other seasonings do, but rather salt brings out the natural flavor that already exists in the same way we are called to enhance the lives of other people. Jesus says you should be carrying around a spark of joy and excitement and encouragement with you everywhere that you go, that your participation in someone's life should bring out the best in them. They should be better for knowing you. Like if you're friends with someone who's naturally gossipy, they love talking about other people. When they're around you, does that behavior get worse because they know that you'll Participate, or, or do they put that behavior away because they know that's not you? You're not like that. Do you carry around a supernatural hope that only comes from Jesus in such a way that every time people interact with you, they walk away like, wow, peace is actually possible in this crazy world because they have it. Is that you? Or do you only post and talk about negative or incendiary or divisive things? What is the metaphorical aftertaste that you leave behind after you interact with people because Jesus' followers are called to enhance the lives of people around them. And then finally, the most important quality of, of salt is that it preserves. It preserves. You see, there's no refrigerators back in Jesus' day. There's no deep freezers. And so one of the main ways people would preserve their food is by coating it in salt, and this would protect it from going bad. Hear this very clearly, church. One of the biggest things that we are called to do in this world is preserve the word of God and the message of the gospel. We live in a world that's starved for purpose and meaning and is seeking answers to all life's hardest questions in all the wrong places, all the while you are meant to look like the word of God. You are meant to look like the word of God. Now this means that you must know the word of God because you can't look like something you don't know and you haven't read. Jesus' followers are meant to be crazy about what God has to say. We're meant to be waking up every day to find a way to connect with God through his words and draw out his words in scripture in a way that makes us tremble and transforms how we live. It is meant to be that serious. His word is supposed to take root inside your soul and permeate permeate throughout your lives in such a powerful way that people who have never met Jesus before can experience what he is all about simply by looking at your life. And so the casual nature with which we blow off engaging with the word of God is terrifying to me because we are supposed to be the ones preserving it. And instead, we would rather do literally anything else and it's no wonder that the American church is such a train wreck right now that spends most of its time pushing people away it's because barely any of its people actually look like the word of God you see to be salt is no small task to be an antiseptic to the wounded to enhance the flavor of other people's lives and to preserve the word of God are massive responsibilities and I just wonder how seriously we're taking them you know and that's only half the passage. Light, light is the other part of this, and it has qualities 
all its own, Jesus says we're meant to be the light of the world. And to put things into perspective, Jesus is preaching in a time when electricity obviously didn't exist, and so their world was not lit up the way that ours is. Their days were shorter. The sun was essential. Fire was essential. Light was so important because they spent so much of their time in darkness. And Jesus says, you, you, my followers, are meant to be a light in this dark world. And we looked at the qualities of salt. Well, what are the qualities of light? And, and to take you back to high school biology, the first essential quality of life is that it brings life. Light is essential when it comes to creating and maintaining life. You may have heard that plants actually take light and they convert it into energy by something called photosynthesis. And then by consequence, they provide oxygen that you and I we can't live without. And then as humans, we also gather energy and vitamins directly from the sun. Science shows us that spending expended periods of time away from sunlight, spending extended periods of time in the dark is actually really bad for our physical and mental health. Light brings life. In the same way, Jesus' followers are supposed to be breathing life into the people around them. Have you ever been so completely devoid of joy or just extremely discouraged and then had someone take the time to do anything even remotely kind for you or go out of their way to encourage you? Do you have any idea how powerful and impactful that can be? If you don't, I'll tell you a story. In 2021, a teenage girl by the name of Becca Georgie, she walked into Starbucks and Becca was in the throes of lifelong battles with depression and anxiety and anorexia. Becca had tried to take her own life five times in the past, and, and she decided that today was going to be the day that she would try again and succeed. She just wanted to have her favorite coffee one more time before she did it. The barista working there noticed Becca's discouragement and, and greeted her warmly, and then she didn't even do anything big. She just simply drew a smiley face on her cup instead of her name and wrote the word smile on it. And the simple act leveled Becca. And she not only decided to fight another day, but she actually wrote a letter to this barista because she was so touched. And this is what Becca wrote to this barista. She said, you didn't know me and you didn't know my story. Most importantly, you probably didn't know writing the simple word smile on my order would change my life. When you look at me, you might assume I'm happy, bubbly, outgoing, and full of life. But you don't really see the complete me. You wouldn't know that behind this plastered smile is a girl who has broken and fallen to pieces. You wouldn't know this girl had so much self-hate she starved herself for over half her young life or that she's tried to end her own life five times. Maybe you wrote, smile on my drink because you saw the feeding tube, or maybe you could see past my fake smile because you've been where I am. Either way, I'm grateful. You didn't have to make my order special. You could have treated me like another, another annoying customer, but you took that extra second to add some positivity to a life that's been filled with so much negativity lately. Church, how bad does it have to be that drawing a smiley face on someone's cup changes their life? And if something that small and insignificant can do something this big, can you just imagine what Jesus can do in the lives of people? 
you have no idea who you're interacting with. You have no idea what people are going through. You have no idea what decisions or conclusions they've come to about their life. But you carry the light of Jesus inside of you, church. A light that the Bible says drives out all darkness. And you're called to bring that light with you everywhere you go and paint this clear picture of who Jesus is and give them a new perspective of who Jesus is when they desperately need it. The second distinct quality of a light is that light is a spectrum. Light is a spectrum. All light actually exists in a spectrum. And, and it's really interesting because within the spectrum of light is where we get colors. That's how you see colors. They exist in a spectrum of light. And one of the most amazing things about these colors is that if you shine all the colors from the spectrum of light in the same place at the same time, do you know what color you get? You get this bright, magnificent white when you shine all the colors at the same place at the same time. In the same way, the kingdom of God and the body of Christ, the church, is made up of an endless combination of people from different nations, people with different skin colors and different backgrounds and different stories, people with different skill sets and giftings, people with different perspectives who are all existing within different communities in different parts of the world, all of these different lights. And yet God has expertly created each and every one of us to work in community together. And so when we take these individual lights, all these colors that he's placed within us, and we shine them at the same time, the world has this opportunity to see the bright, magnificent light that is Jesus Christ. And this light brings life and it transforms and it calls people into a relationship with God in which they will never be the same again. God has designed it this way, a city on a hill expertly placed, woven together perfectly to glorify God, this perfect spectrum. And then the final most powerful quality of light is that it invades darkness. Invades darkness, you know this. You know this, this is no secret to you. Maybe you were a child who was terrified of the dark and felt the sweet relief of turning on a nightlight. Maybe you've lost something in the crack of your couch and had no chance of finding it until you turned on a flashlight on your cell phone and directed it into the darkness. You see, darkness feels powerful and heavy and devastating when you find yourself swallowed up by it. But how quickly darkness is pushed back by even a little bit of light. Light almost seems to actively seek out dark corners. It seems to actively find dark areas to try to light up. Church, we live in a world with no shortage of darkness. We live in a world with no shortage of catastrophe and loss and heartbreak. You know this. You live this. And the thing is, we live in one of the most privileged nations in the world, and still you feel the weight of darkness every single day. And I think one of the biggest ways the American church gets it wrong, one of the biggest ways the American church gets it wrong when it comes to invading darkness is that we try to eliminate darkness, but we forget to bring the light. We forget to bring the light. 
meaning Christians fight to institute rules and get laws put in place, and we spend time arguing with people and try to get them to change their behavior. And I don't know if you've noticed, but the volume of Christians always seem to be turned up to 10 when we start talking about what is a sin and who is a sinner. That's when we seem to be at our loudest. Can I, can I just share with you the truth that we're actually watching play out in American society as Christians live this way? That's not light invading darkness. That's not light invading darkness. That's just pushing darkness further into darkness. Because you see, it's, it's not human behavior and the control of human behavior that leads to salvation. The only thing that leads to salvation is being lit up by the bright light that only comes from Jesus Christ. And so I challenge you, I actually challenge you, why don't you go home this afternoon and after the sun goes down, walk into any dark room in your house. I want you to walk into that room armed with nothing but your smart mouth and your fists and I want you to try to argue or fight some light into that room. You're going to fail every single time. And yet, that's exactly how we approach invading darkness in America. It's rarely about Jesus. It's rarely centered around the gospel. It barely ever involves things getting messy and forming relationships with struggling people and, and offering, sacrificing time and energy and emotional bandwidth to walk with people who are still struggling to understand this and being a part of their messy lives. It almost never looks like that. Instead, we'd rather throw stones from far away and cast judgment and comment snarky things and just judge people. And it's funny how we tend to judge harder when it's sins that we don't personally deal with. It's so bad. But then the things that we do struggle with, we, we tend to offer a little bit more grace. Well, it's when other people sin, when other people sin, it's because they're hypocrites or they're corrupt or they're evil, and yet when we sin over here, well, it's, I'm just a work in progress. That's never going to invade darkness. That's never going to invade darkness, and so I wonder when we'll stop doing it. I wonder when we'll start just bringing everything back to Jesus. I wonder when Jesus will be enough, you know? Salt of the earth and light of the world, that is what you and I are called to be by Jesus. How's that going for you? How's that going for you? I want you to think about this. Think about this. If how you live your life was the only picture of Jesus that anyone ever had, they didn't have songs, they didn't have the Bible, they didn't have any other resource except how you live your life, of how you individually lived your life was the only picture of Jesus that someone ever had, if how you love was all they would ever know about how Jesus loved, if the way that you care and fight for people was all they would ever know about how Jesus fights for people, if someone were to observe your life and from your life gather conclusions about this Jesus who you serve, would they worship him? Would they fall on their face and worship that Jesus, or would they run the other direction? At the end of this passage, Jesus 
commands. He doesn't suggest. He doesn't hint at. He actually commands this. Don't miss that. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. How are your works looking? How's your light shining? And not to bolster your reputation, not to make you look good, but because Jesus says when you live this way, you show people that I'm good. When I was growing up, there was this band named DC Talk. I don't know if any of you ever heard of them. DC Talk was this massive band in the 90s, and they had this introduction at the beginning of one of their songs, and it has stuck with me since I was a teenager. Before one of their songs, a pastor and author named Brennan Manning, he comes on and he says this. He says, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And that was in the 90s. What do they think now? You see, people don't refuse to come to Jesus because Jesus isn't great. Jesus is great. He's amazing. There's no one like him. No one could do what he has done. Jesus is great. But you see, his followers have lost their saltiness. They've lost their light. Last year, my wife bought me a visit to a salt tank. A sensory deprivation tank is another name for it. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. It's a form of physical and mental therapy. And if you don't know what a salt tank is, basically they take these swimming pool-sized tanks and they fill them with so much salt that when you lay in them, you float perfectly on the surface with no effort. You don't even have to try. You just lay there. You're just suspended there in the water. And then... They make the temperature of the water exactly body temperature so you don't even feel it. So it just feels like you're floating. And then they have these warm colors that you can cycle through in the tank and you can just close your eyes and it feels like you're just like floating weightlessly through space. And it's, it's really nice. I definitely recommend it. But the thing is, as peaceful as that is, I also think this is a heartbreakingly accurate representation of the church. Because you see, we have this precious gospel message, and it's salty, and it's full of light, and it's beautiful. And when we walk into this building, we love swimming around in it, right? We love just floating around. Isn't it? How great is it to be loved by Jesus? Isn't it amazing to be saved? Isn't it amazing to experience this beautiful life? And we love swimming around in it. It's beautiful, right? Let's have another potluck, right? Let's, 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 I'll bring the mashed potatoes, you bring the chicken, and it's like, how can we live this way when right outside our doors the world is falling apart and people are walking into Starbucks to place their farewell coffee order before they take their own lives? How can we live this way and just swim around in these salt tanks in this building while people are literally falling face first into hell both in this life and the next? That's not how we honor Jesus, church. That's embarrassing. And so I'm sorry if this is heavy for you to hear, but I'm also not. 
Because the thing is, we've been given this massive responsibility by Jesus. Not only do we get this inconceivable gift of being known and loved and forgiven by the grace of Jesus, but then he puts the keys of his kingdom into your hands. And after he ascends into heaven, he says, I'm going to make you a representative of my kingdom. I'm going to put my life into your broken soul, and I want you to go out and live in such a way that when the world looks at you, they can see me. Will you do that? Will you live like that? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Man, I pray that we're a church that doesn't just take refuge in Jesus ourselves and keep the salt contained in just this building, but I pray that we're a church that takes it seriously when Jesus commands us to be salt and light. I pray that we will be a community that is never satisfied until every person in our lives tastes and sees that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good. There is no one like you. There is no love that exists the way that you love us. There is no sacrifice that could ever be made that compares to the sacrifice that you made that washes away our sin and grants us this new identity and this new hope and this new peace. God, I just pray that we're the kind of church that doesn't just revel in it when we're in this building, that doesn't just take advantage of an opportunity to be loved by you and float around in the beauty of that, but actually takes it seriously when you say that there is a world outside your doors that is hurting, that is broken, that has fallen apart, and I need you to go and show them how good I am. I need you to go and show them what can happen when a life gets handed to me. This community needs it, God. Our families need it. Our neighborhoods need it. Our state needs it. And you've put this responsibility on us. And then the beautiful thing about you is that you don't ask us to do it on our own. You walk alongside us. You say, I'll give you the words. I'll give you the love in your heart. I will help you live this life that I've called you to live. But I need you to take a step. God, I pray for everyone in this room right now that you just bring people to mind people in our family, people in our friends groups, people at work, people who you know desperately need to experience your love, and I pray that you send us, God. I pray that we are a community that sticks our hand up and says, send me, Jesus. Send me to the hurting. Send me to the broken, and I will go and love them the way that you've called me to. And I know that this community, this state, this world will be transformed. We'll take that seriously and partner with you in your amazing grace. Lord, we love you so much. We pray all these things in your name and your name alone. Amen.